Welcome to The Wizardist Podcast. I'm Paul Canetti. The Wizardist Podcast is a brand new podcast that I'm starting along with my new website, wizardist.com, a new publication about Apple, tech, UX, startups, and other nerdy topics. Basically, just stuff I like to write and talk about, uh, I'll be writing about there and uh, talking about here. And so a little bit about myself. Um, Again, my name is Paul. I'm the founder and CEO of a company called Maz based in New York City. Maz is an app creation and CMS platform uh, that basically helps media companies create apps. And so we work with companies like Forbes and USA Today and Entrepreneur um, and hundreds of others to help them create their apps. Sort of the same way you would make like a website with WordPress, you make an app with Maz. Um, I also teach at Columbia Business School uh, on topics around user experience and product management. I also teach at General Assembly. And in general, I'm into tech startup stuff. I used to work at Apple. I'm a UX and UI designer. And now I'm starting a podcast. Uh, The idea behind the podcast is to find people from companies that are doing interesting things in user experience. One of my core beliefs and something that I talk a lot about in my course at Columbia is this idea of UX as a business differentiator and that increasingly user experience um, can be and and is a way that companies are differentiating. You see a lot of uh, examples of this, of course, in the tech sector, but really, I believe that it applies to any sort of business. And so today, I'm really excited to have on the podcast Dismer Singh from Venmo. Besides the fact that Venmo has been wildly successful and uh, it's fun to hear about what they're up to, um, Desmer's story uh, about how he came to work in tech is really interesting and inspiring. Uh, He studied finance in school, then taught himself how to be an iOS developer and ended up at one of the hottest tech companies uh, that there is right now. And he's still so early in his career. So it was great uh, of him to take some time to sit down and uh, speak with me. And of course, we also got into some pretty deep Apple-y topics around iOS 10, iMessage apps, Siri, and the future of you know uh, mobile interfaces. And so uh, if you're into that sort of stuff, you will definitely enjoy this conversation, hopefully as much as I did. And so keep in mind, this is the first episode of the first podcast that I've ever done. And so I'm going to learn each time, but hopefully uh, we're off to a good start. And uh, without further ado, here is episode one of The Wizardist Podcast with Desmer Singh of Venmo. So welcome to The Wizardist Podcast. Thanks, Paul. I'm really excited to be here. So, you know, tell me a little bit about yourself, sort of your career in tech started yeah just like a, a brief history yeah brief history yeah cool so um i actually graduated from columbia like it's like three years ago um i was a finance major and actually uh two weeks after graduating i started working at jp morgan in their corporate finance analytics department um i think four days in i realized this isn't what i want to do for the rest of my life not even a full week not even a full week i told my boss the the Friday of my first week that I don't want to be here anymore. And he was like, this is your first job in your life ever, in your first week. We're doing it. Give it a few more weeks for me and just try it out. I was like, okay, fine. So I stuck around for a total of six weeks and then um, really realized that this wasn't for me. I really wanted, I felt like 
the work I was doing wasn't really making me tick. Like, I had worked at a startup before um, for one internship, and during that internship, I was deploying things that like people over the world were using. It wasn't very many people, but like it was it was really cool to see that like I had direct impact and very quick impact on many people. Um, so and that's what I wanted to do. So I left almost yeah, after six weeks and started teaching myself to write iPhone apps. Um, and had you done any coding previous? Had you done like web coding or? So yeah, I I was a computer science minor in um, at Columbia, and I actually started coding back when I was like five or six years old. Like my parents' friends owned like a computer school. Um, wow. So like once a week I would go and just like learn basic HTML and stuff. So I built some small websites when I was really, like really young. Um, nothing spectacular, uh, and then I yeah I uh, was a CS minor in college. It was just okay for a six year old. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was fun though. Like I I did uh I made some like really cool like AOL hot, like homepages and stuff. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Like I made like an aggregator for like, all the, like, the fun games I had, like all the fun games I like. Like my friends would use it and like pick games from the games I liked. It was pretty cool. Um. um so that's interesting. So yeah. finance took a hard turn very quickly yeah um, and how did you find the process of learning ios like how did you go about that um did you have friends that had done it or was this really just like you and a lot of googling well uh it was actually like i mean i had an iphone and i was always interested in learning to do iphone like ios development i'd never done it before um but i was really i thought it was really cool that like i could build an app or i would be able to build an app that was like in my pocket or in my friends' pockets. So actually, like I think like week two at J.P. Morgan, um, after I got home at like two in the morning, I started like just googling some t- tutorials and like built a small calculator at like six in the morning, like finished at six in the morning that day uh, after downloading Xcode, etc. And uh, after I left J.P. Morgan, I actually started um, watching uh, Paul Haggerty's uh, iOS lecture from Stanford. Uh, he records it every semester to keep it up to date, huh. and it's completely free. It's on iTunes U. So I watched that entire lecture series in two weeks, uh, and did like all the assignments. Like I had a, a pretty decent understanding of basic iOS development. And then about I think the third week after I left J.P. Morgan, I submitted my first app to the App Store. That's incredible. Was this before Swift? Like where? When? What like version this of is, iOS were you using when, is, when you were learning? One year before Swift, so this is so I started working at J.P. Morgan in June of 2013. Uh, I left at the end of July, like the last day of July, and um, so iOS 7 had just been announced, but I was not using the beta X code. Uh-huh. Uh, I was using whatever was out, so I was actually like developing for iOS 6. So, so you're sort of like on the tail end of the the Objective C yeah world. Well, and then like if it had been a year later. You might have just started with Swift then. Right. I would have just started with Swift. Swift still wasn't a thing. Like no one knew yeah, about yeah, it yeah. back then. Because it came out um, in I mean it was announced in June of twenty fourteen at that WWDC. Yeah. So That's amazing. Yeah, I was I mean I remember I was so by that time I was already at Venmo. So wait, so let's just back up a little bit. Yeah. Maybe paint a picture of where Venmo was at that time, but it seems crazy that they would hire an iOS developer <laughs> that you know, had no experience yeah. and had was self-taught as in like last week. Right, right. Um, well, so. I, I didn't move just like immediately, right? So okay. I left. So I left in July from yeah. JP Morgan. Uh, in August, I said my first app was in the App Store. Uh, I submitted two more to the App Store before the end of September. So I had three in the App Store, 
And then and I. And what sort of apps were these? Um, the first app was actually an app to find Sikh temples nearby. There's actually no good database for Sikh temples. Interesting. So I used Amazon Mechanical Turk and a bunch of other tools to like kind of curate and find temples all around the world. Uh, created a, a database of thousands and thousands of temples and um, also let people crowdsource so they can submit new temples and I would review them and publish them to the store. Got it. Uh, from within the app. So that was my first app. Second app was called, that was called Find Gurdwara. Gurdwara means Sikh temple. Uh, my second app was called Instastamp. It basically took the metadata of a picture, so uh, like location information if it exists, and most mostly just like the timestamp itself, and stamps on the picture. So it looks like those retro pictures with like the little time, red timestamp yeah, at the bottom yeah, right yeah, corner. Yeah. Um, that's what it did. So you just like composite it and then and export it as an image file. Exactly. Yeah. Very simple app. Like doesn't have any like uh, connection to the internet at all. So it was like straightforward to make. And then I based, and this is before I knew how to use GitHub and like really version control any apps. Right. So like everything was just on Dropbox. And like every time like, I felt like I was at a solid point to not lose my work, I would just duplicate the entire project. <laughs> yeah, and, save and, as. Arch yeah, yeah, archive it again. And uh, my next app was called Baby Stamp, which is a duplicate of Instastamp, um, different colors. And the only difference was that when you first open the app, you put in like the exact birth date and time of your baby if you have one or toddler. And then you can go back and pick different pictures out of your photo library, and it would put their exact like months, days old. That's a really cute idea. Picture. Yeah. So, so when you first talked to the folks at Venmo, yeah, even though you hadn't worked at a company in this capacity, you had like yeah. this sort of portfolio so, of, of work to show them. Portfolio of apps. I interviewed at Venmo at, at, in January of 2014, um, and in the middle. So after submitting those three apps, I actually went to the Flatiron School. And I did a 10-week iOS boot camp there. And in that time, I actually built three more apps, three or four more apps. Um, I also did some consulting work and uh, built a prototype app for someone and then also submitted uh, a few more apps for just other other people that wanted apps in the App Store. So I had a portfolio of about eight or nine apps yeah. by January. Because this is a question that, that people ask a lot, which is, right. you know, I want to get into this field, whether it's development or design or UX or product mm -hmm. management or whatever it is. But I have no experience, and it's seemingly like a chicken or egg problem. Right. But it seems like you circumvented it in in a very self sufficient way, which is like I'm I'm just going to build stuff. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know what I wanted to do after leaving J P Morgan. I knew I wanted to be in tech. I didn't know if I was going to just like start my own com own company like day one. But like, I knew I wanted to learn how to do iOS, and the best way to learn was just to keep building. So every single app I built kind of like tested the new framework of iOS. Uh, Find Gurdwara was like the maps, Instastamp and Baby Stamp were like pictures and taking metadata pictures. Mm -hmm. uh, I built an app similar to Ellen um, DeGeneres has an app called Heads Up, where oh yeah, I played that game. So that uses basically like the accelerometers and all the other like motion to detect if you're like when you get an answer right, like you tilt forwards, yeah. and, and when you get an answer wrong, you like tilt backwards. So I, I built an app similar to that that connects to Facebook called Who's Up, um, and that. Does the same thing. It uses like the motion sensors, and it also uses the video camera to record everyone around you. Um, so I love those sort of apps because, you know, like whatever. Like my parents can play that game, right? And they're not thinking like, "Wow, what a cool gestural yeah. interface this is," mm -hmm. because it seems so intuitive and and so um, you know, uh, sort of natural to use your body in that way. But yeah. actually, the what, what's happening. 
you know, technologically there is, is quite sophisticated and, and, you know, sort of cross-referencing all these sort of inputs and, and um, you know, so it brings us to sort of this larger topic, which is the sorts of interfaces or, or um, inputs that a mobile device sort of affords you, yep. you know, and it's kind of interesting to enter into the development world as a mobile first developer, because I know a lot of folks that came from the desktop world mm-hmm. and then became mobile developers and sort of brought that point and click mentality with them. Right. Um, so do you think that you are sort of liberated in a way? Because even though you did make some some kick-ass websites as a kid, <laughs> yeah. um, that in a, in a in the in your serious career, you've only really worked in the mobile sphere. I mean, I think that's what really appealed to me. I didn't. I never thought about it that way. That like I, but yeah, you're right. In that like, I've always thought about building. Like I've always had like the freedom to kind of like choose which input device I could use, whether it's the GPS, whether it's the camera, whether it's like the, the accelerometers, whether it's a compass. Um, I think that that may have actually given me some some leverage in terms of. Uh, being able to think more open, open-mindedly about the way that people interact with their devices. Right. I've been reading some stuff recently, especially about the camera in light of the the you know dual camera on the on the iPhone right. Seven Plus, and that you know Benedict Evans wrote this great piece about um, thinking of the cameras as as visual sensors as just sort of other inputs, mm-hmm. the same way that the multi-touch screen is an input and you know the velocity of the device is an input and the angle of the device is an input yep. and that you know basically these light sensors which we call cameras mm-hmm. is an input the microphone's an input um, and it's hard because obviously we're visual creatures right. um, and and so it looks like camera feels like camera it's a camera <laughs> um, instead of thinking of it as a light sensor right and and what that potentially could imply about future use cases. And mm. I think that whole idea is really fascinating. Did he have some ideas? No. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Not that I remember. Okay. Um, but I think that's the hard part. It's like, it's like knowing that is one thing, sort of realizing its potential mm-hmm. in, in something that would actually become a useful product is, right. is totally different. You know, like the Heads Up app, you know, I would imagine that when the the first draft of that was like a green button and a red button yeah. for like it's right or wrong, but then like wait, but the the person using it isn't supposed to see the screen, so right. and all of a sudden it, it unlocks sort of right. you know the use case. You expand that creativity to the other inputs that you have to use. Right, right, exactly. Speaking of of iPhones and iOS and whatever, um, you know, recently there's been some new developments with iOS 10 opening up um, some areas of iOS that were previously, you know, restricted to us third-party developer types. Um, so maybe if you want to tell us a little bit about what you've been working on, and, and then I'm curious just to get your thoughts in general on iMessage apps on. I'm I'm calling them Siri apps, even though it's not what what Apple calls them. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, this larger theme of like taking functionality that exists inside an app, like a proper app, and sort of distributing it into these different areas of the OS um, and making it sort of lighter. And and um, you know, I know developers that are doing that just for the sake of doing that. It mm-hmm. seems like like you guys have managed to do that in a integrated way that actually helps the user. Um, and so when you hear about new features like that, are you instinctively just like, oh, we got to build that in, like it's available, so we have to do it? Or is it really, do you put it through the ringer and sort of like, does this apply to our user? 
Um, it's definitely the latter case. We definitely think about the user experience in terms of will this actually, like, so Venmo's goal from day one has always been make payments more fun and easy to use, uh, make, make payments more fun and easy. And um, I think that, especially the Siri integration, where you can just talk into Siri and make a payment, it just makes payments, payments have always been like a social conversational aspect of Venmo. And this almost like reinforces that aspect. Uh, you don't have to open the Venmo app to go and make a payment. You know what? This is sort of cool because normally on a podcast, it's hard to demo an app. Right. But but let's let's attempt a live <laughs> demo here. Let's do it. Let's see. Pay Paul $5. Great. Confirming you want to use Venmo. Yes. What do you want to say in your note? Thanks for having me on the podcast, Paul. This is great. Here's your Venmo payment for $5. Do you want to send it? Yes. Venmo sent your payment. I need to back up for a second. Is your Siri British? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I was actually speaking um, about Siri um, at iOS Dev UK. It was a conference um, in Wales, actually. And I thought I'd rather just like, embrace the culture and also make my Siri British while I was there. And I never changed it back. My, my Siri is so like American and boring. <laughs> <laughs> you should change it for once. I mean, they have an Australian, they have, they have English. I think they have a bunch of different accents. Really? I think they have an Indian English accent too, which is really interesting. I have no idea. Yeah. Oh, I gotta, I gotta <laughs> get into my international series. <laughs> for sure. That is honestly much easier than opening the app, using the iMessage app, texting a number, doing a chat bot through Facebook. I mean, like, what could be easier than literally just saying out loud? Right. And you don't even have to have your phone near you, right? You just say, hey, Siri. And yeah. You can say the entire thing in one line. Just say, like, the person you're paying, um, say Venmo in, in that string uh -huh. as well. Uh, say how, how much it is and what the note is and for. so you can bypass some of those yes or no's. Yep. It's just, yeah. It basically is, Siri is trying to collect all those variables um, and make that payment. So until it has all of them, it's going to keep asking you questions. Got it. But if you give it all the information on the onset, it won't ask for anything else. That's a really good way to think about chat interfaces, whether verbal or written, I yeah. guess. It's just like, if you can give all of the information that the system needs like yeah. in one line. I mean, I was involved in the build for the Siri integration, and I feel like I learned a lot about basic NLP yeah. just through uh, like learning about the APIs for Siri. Natural language processing. For, yes. Yeah, um, for the normies. <laughs> um, yeah, it's pretty interesting. But like, are you... Do you need to do any of that, or is that happening on Apple's side? It's happening on Apple's side, but I think like the whole gathering of data was really interesting. I, I also started Googling more about NLP. Yeah, sure. Kind so of there understand. are like data points basically that you're defining that you need, and Siri is basically asking for them on your behalf. Exactly. So every single domain has a different set of data points, and regardless of the app you're using, it's always, Siri's always going to ask for those same data points. Um, and until until it gathers all of them, it's not going to let you. That makes move more over. sense too about why Siri's doing it domain by domain. Yeah. Because they can sort of master the types of inputs you would need to hail a taxi or yeah. make a payment or and get I, a sports score or whatever. Right. Exactly. I haven't used Echo or anything that much, but I do think that the way that Apple's doing it is the right way, just because because it's restricting you to like only make conversations in this particular or only intake conversations in this particular way, no matter how you speak it it's going to really master those domains as opposed to being like an end-all be-all to all different types of conversations. Yeah, with the Alexa skills, which is what they call their like apps, it's yeah. very, um, 
I mean, most of them are just complete shit. Mm-hmm. And I, I believe it's because the developer is actually defining a lot of like the back and forth. You right. know, even if you're using some of Amazon's tools to like parse the input, um, it's it's very open ended, mm-hmm. which is appealing because you could build an app that theoretically does, does anything, anything. Right. But then it's just sort of like bad at everything. Right. Unless you really have a killer team Who's, internally that, that can handle it. Yeah. Um, whereas Siri is almost like setting you up for success because giving you a, a relatively limited palette to work with. Um, it's really structured in the conversation. You're just, you're just consuming it with an API, just like you would with any other it's API. It's like filling out a form exactly. on a website or something. Right? Exactly. That's probably the best way of thinking about it. Does Siri accept emojis? You can't say, like, smiley face, right? Like, I don't even know. Like, my whole Venmo game is all about emojis. Yeah, that's probably the one part I think is lacking the most in Siri right now. <laughs> so Venmo is all about, like, using emoji to be, like, witty with your note, especially because... Emoji reveal just like part of like the story and like uh-huh. it keeps people guessing about like what those emoji really mean and right in the context like maybe your close friends who know who you are with like know exactly what that emoji might mean yeah, but yeah other people yeah. are it's guessing like secret language right. you know um, so Siri is one thing with your iMessage app yeah I think it's pretty interesting because you know it's almost inversing the social relationship instead of taking a payment app and making it social you're putting a payment app in an app that's already social. Right. Um, the result is basically the same. It's just that if I'm already talking to you, I don't need to leave my conversation to... Right. And to, it's about that context, right? Where yeah. like you're already talking to someone, you might say, like, hey, you owe me $8. Like, you send them a request inside of, the, inside of iMessage as opposed to making the app switch. And they can accept also with an iMessage. Yes. So it makes like the number of context changes like literally like in the app itself um, much fewer because you just the entire interaction happens in iMessage. Yeah, it's super seamless. Right. Um, so what's your take on this whole idea of iMessages and, and this idea of, again, taking functionality um, and, and both from a consumer side and from, from a developer or publisher side, like do you feel bad because you want people to be opening the Venmo app and this is sort of like taking that away from you in some way, um, or do you see it as a positive thing, or, or it's just sort of like equal? And then, just as a user, do you buy into this idea that people actually want to do stuff in their conversations? So, as a publisher, I think it's mostly good. Like you're right that like yeah, we do lose some app opens, but at the same time, we're also gaining many more users. For example, like if you don't have Venmo already, I can just I can pay you from within my iMessage and it'll say like install Venmo. So like we're gaining, we're gaining so many more users that way. And also a lot of the time people are opening our app anyway, just to read the feed. Like many reactive users are just engaging with the feed just to see where they're like, what their friends are doing. Um, many people say that the Venmo feed is actually more like real than other, other like social, social feeds because every single story has like a payment and some value behind it. So there's like something that actually happened. So the consumption people. piece still happens in the right. app proper. Yes. But the transactional piece, happens exactly. elsewhere right right and then for the consumer i think i think uh, apple really took uh some notes from like the wechats and stuff uh where like you can do so many things in one app right um you like i think we wechat has like the whole social all the social features it has like a mic video chat um it has uh payments as well you can even like do in-store payments in, in wechat and i think apple's basically in, but the thing about wechat is that because 
the one company is making all those things, um, it's almost as if uh, it, it's almost it's almost as if like we're not getting the best of everything in one. But with iMessage, like because individual app developers are building something, like for example, Venmo is building the payments app, um, we're getting, you're getting like, the best of each. Right, you're not getting like a watered down right version because you guys are just specializing in that and the next guys are just specializing in their thing and and whatever right i think there's a lot of room to grow for example um it'd be really cool if just like siri uh i message could re register intents so that when i say you owe me ten dollars not only like would it like it would be cool if it automatically generated like a, a venmo payment and all you can do is like click on yeah yeah, yeah. click on pay ten dollars just just as if you would if i sent you like a phone number and you just click on it to, to make calls and that's been happening for a very long time in ios I think that there's definitely room for improvement on iMessage as well. Yeah, deeper integration. Yeah. How do you think that approach compares to like the Facebook bot, you know, sort of situation or, you know, because people are sort of grouping iMessage apps in with these chat bots. Right. But they're not chat bots. They're, they're, they're they are what they sound people. like, which is they are iMessage apps. They're apps that live inside iMessage um, as opposed to a Facebook bot, which is basically where you're opening a chat thread with an app. Right. Um, so how do you sort of think about the two and, and which do you think is the right approach? Because it sort of seems like they're taking two quite divergent mm -hmm. approaches. Both, the only common ground is that they're happening inside messaging apps, but otherwise like, it doesn't actually seem like there's much in common there. Yeah, I mean, the common thing is that they're both different apps that are both communicating, like being the users interacting with via messaging. But I do think that um, I think that that it's more natural to speak to people as opposed as opposed to speaking to like these chatbots, and I think that having these integrations like iMessage is doing today without these bots, but with real people and having like for example with improvements like these intents coming up, um, is just a more natural way for people to communicate and have things done contextually. Uh, I think that's like I think you lose that sense of context when you're chatting with a bot because now you're creating a new conversation with a different entity while for example especially in the, in the payments case um you're already speaking to the person that you intend to pay so there's a lot more context in that conversation i, I don't see much of a difference between chatting with a bot or just switching to a different app right. to make a payment right in other words so i start a chat hey venmo you know can you send paul 10 bucks is not that different than just opening the Venmo app and right. sending $10 to me. Arguably, it's actually more work because you're typing in more characters. Right. Instead of just tapping buttons. Right. Well, and so if, it's funny if you look at some of the in-message apps inside, you know, um, some of the other apps like WeChat, whatever, they really are, they have buttons instead of, instead of uh, a text input field. Yeah. And if you go far enough down that road, it's, it's not a chatbot at all. It's just... Another, another integration, app, you know, so, and so it almost feels like Apple's sort of skipping there. But right, I think the mm -hmm. context. I think you're totally right. The difference is that it's bringing an app into a conversation between you and someone else or a group of people, instead of basically just replacing the one-on-one -on -one relationship, you and the app, with you and the chatbot. Yep, it's still isolated because it's just you and the software. Right. I don't think that's actually solving the problem that it's intended to solve, which is this context. Um, I think that Apple's really gone all in with this, this like contextual approach, whether it's like with handoff uh, amongst different devices, where if you're like on someone's web page or some particular web page on your on your iDevice on your iPhone, 
um, when you go into Mac, like it'll automatically also open that web page up so that you don't really lose that context no matter what device you're on. Yeah. Uh, I think with iOS 10, they've done a great job of this. So for example, if you're like in the Yelp app um, and you're looking at a particular place, when you app switch uh, and go into Uber, it'll like suggest that place you were just on like at Yelp at. So, uh-huh. And that's really, really great. Because like before what we would have to do is like open one app, copy and paste. And now it's just like we're Apple's inferring based on the context and the situation you're in. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's it's totally true that ubiquity of experience, I think, is interesting. And, and thinking from a UX perspective, it's the inference is the key to the whole thing, right? right. Because it's anticipating what you want to do next. Yeah. Um, I do think that Apple's going with an approach where at first, when apps were siloed into their own sandboxes and like you couldn't even background apps at that time, like they would run one at a time. Yeah, sure. Uh, each app was its own tool to completing a task, where now your iPhone becomes the tool to complete all tasks. Right. Um, it just has many different connections. Well, and so, you know, in the chatbot versus message app sort of, you know, um, dichotomy, I actually think Apple is playing both sides uh, and they're doing that through the Siri integration. And so Siri to me represents the chatbot side of this approach. Mm-hmm. Really, it's just you interacting with Venmo, just you and Venmo. Yep. There's an intermediary there called Siri, mm-hmm. um, which is basically, like you're saying, is your iPhone. Right. Instead of saying, hey, iPhone, do this for me, you're saying, hey, Siri. Right. That's just, you know, like a, an amp- what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, <laughs> hey, Siri. <laughs> that's hilarious. Um, I see what you mean, but I do, I do think that the value <laughs> that Siri's adding is more that it's, it's still hands-off. Totally. And right. there, there, there are benefits that Siri has that a typed out chatbot does not have. Right. But ultimately, Siri is a, a chatbot. Right. It's, it's a conversational UI mm-hmm. between you and the software as opposed to in, uh, a, a non-conversational UI that inserts itself into a conversation with another human. Yep. And to me, Apple's actually hedging their bets in a way by offering you both. Mm-hmm. They just don't call it a chatbot. Right. Um, and so I actually think it's the best of both worlds because in different contexts and for different use cases, sometimes it doesn't make sense. You're not in a conversation mm-hmm. with someone yep. and you don't necessarily want to start a conversation with them right. or you want to do a task that doesn't involve another human at all. Right. Um, but Siri is just a lot easier than opening up a new a text up. message thread with an app. Which again is no easier than opening the app. Opening the app. Right. Because you have to open an app. Right. Which is iMessage. Like, yeah. it's, it's the same. On the other hand, you can't just speak to Venmo directly because there is no integration for that. And that's where Siri is like the middleman. Yep. yep. Have you used Amazon Echo much? Uh, a little bit. Not too much. Yeah. So I'm really big on, on Amazon Echo or Alexa, as she yes. is known. Um, How do you think she compares to Siri? She is not book smart, mm-hmm. but she's street smart. Um, okay. Alexa Explain. is, there's something about having this disembodied voice in your home right. that feels much more intimate than talking into your phone, like in a psychological sense, uh, because since Siri is the phone, I like know I'm using the phone. Mm-hmm. And something about Alexa just feels more magical somehow. Okay. Maybe it's also my Alexa is literally behind the TV, so I, I can't see it at all. Right. Um, 
when she speaks my daughter who's just a little over one year old like she gets scared <laughs> because it doesn't make sense to her right like how could there be a voice in the room and my dad's talking to this voice but like mm. i have no other evidence of a person being here which is pretty amazing yeah you would think of anything she'd be more open-minded to the idea right. of like that that would seem natural but obviously there's something deep in our biology that says you shouldn't be hearing voices um and and but but she can't do as much stuff you know um but it's getting there it's it's really getting there in integrations with samsung tvs and integrations with you know hue light bulbs um even the spotify integration has been huge but just basic tasks like in the morning like what's the weather or whatever. And one thing that I love about it is it doesn't have those annoying beeps that Siri has. Okay. So there's not like you can start and stop talking when I tell you. Right. And I understand from a technology, That's key. From a development standpoint, why of course you would want to sort of bookend mm -hmm. that voice input. Yeah. But like I'm constantly guessing at when I can talk to Siri and when I can't. Mm -hmm. And those little beeps are just constantly, or at least seemingly constantly interrupting me. Whereas Alexa feels like a much more natural conversation because you say Alexa and you just start talking and then she responds and you respond and she responds and you respond. Um, and so it's definitely laying the groundwork for a more natural conversation. Isn't it just the absence of the beeps? Because I know she does have that light, right? And you can she only has speak the light. when lights. Correct. So yeah, yeah. But again, like for me, and I guess I'm a weird use case, but I don't see the light. Right. And so it just feels like I'm talking to someone. Mm -hmm. It doesn't feel like I'm talking to a computer. So, you know? okay. So if, if Siri had muted its beeps, <laughs> then, then I would love Siri. <laughs> it's such a small change. Um, it's such a small change, but it takes me out of it. You yeah. Know? Uh, what do you predict for Siri uh, in the future? Like, I think like this, this year when they announced those five or six uh, yeah. different domains for Siri, yeah. I do think those those will expand next oh, year. Oh, absolutely. For sure. And and if if you read the interviews with the with the Apple execs, you know, basically they're saying that they want to go really like deep on each of those areas of expertise so that when when they do roll out the next sort of category or domain, there's a very small chance that it's going to get messed up, mm -hmm. you know, because I think they rightfully realize that um, if you try to use Siri and it doesn't work, then you become frustrated and it's like, ah, oh, it would have been easier just to open the app and you're like less likely to try it. Right. Um, but I don't see mass adoption in my personal life. Like anecdotally, I do not meet a lot of people that use Siri on a regular basis. Maybe it's because nobody that a lot. drives here. People say that a lot. I think a lot of the reason for that is that as a user, I'm a lot less likely to use Siri when other people are around me. Yes. I think it is when you're alone. Like for example, even like how often have you like even Apple Watch, like how how often will you like speak on your Apple Watch like this? It's a very awkward situation if you're limiting. around people. Yeah. But if your phone's if you're on your desk and your phone's somewhere else, and uh, someone gives you a call and you're only the only one there, you're a lot more likely to pick up on your watch. I think that's absolutely true. And and the new in WatchOS three, there's the scribble functionality where you can actually you know write type, text. but yeah, yeah. write a response letter by letter. Um, you know, I don't know if you've noticed, but Apple has broadened their use of the term Siri throughout the OS to sort of represent this general intelligence, like Siri suggested apps yeah. and whatever, um, as opposed to Siri just being the yeah. voice, which I think is also a clue sort of. Um, but yeah, with, with, with Apple Watch, totally, I would get a text, but then if I'm around anyone, I still take my phone out of my pocket to reply. But if I'm by myself or I'm walking down the street where I'm sort of anonymous, 
then I would reply with a voice dictation. But now I have the scribble option, which which has been like a huge improvement. Um, yeah, I think social, I don't know, you know. It seems like, weird to speak to a robot, right? Yeah, it's, 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 it's because you feel self-conscious, you know, like I wore Google Glass for, right. for two weeks. Um, I, and it's on and off other, other times, but as I said, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna really go for it. Like I'm gonna try to use this device, you know? Um, and I actually really enjoyed my experience for the most part the biggest thing was that people were looking at me. Funny, yeah. You know, and and it's the same thing when you're talking to your watch. Yep. People are just like, "What's that guy doing?" Even if that's not true, even if they couldn't give less of a shit, which they in New York they definitely can't. They've seen much weirder than <laughs> than a, a guy in a hoodie talking into his wrist. Right. But it's the self conscious thing where you're like, you don't want to stand out in that way. I also you know? do think that because there is a pretty significant likelihood that Siri's going to get it wrong. Um, it makes you look silly in front of people, which is also like a fear that people have. Right. I think that if I knew that Siri wasn't understand understand it the first time, I would confidently do it that way because yeah. I wouldn't look as silly. This happens all the time. So like when people come over that have never used Alexa, yeah, I'll sort of in the right moment be like, Alexa, who starred in this movie? Like if we're talking about a movie, and they're like, Whoa, that's so crazy! And then she's like, I don't know what you said. And I'm like, <laughs> God damn it, Alexa! Like trying to be cool in front of my friends, like right. hook, yeah. hook me up, you know. Um, Right, if you don't trust the technology, you're less likely to use it. Uh, Especially in public where there's more of a cost to getting it wrong because it's like that social uh, yeah. expectation of doing it right. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, we, we mentioned just before we started recording about Snapchat spectacles, Yeah. you know, and as they relate to Google Glass or even Apple Watch, you know, it'll be interesting to see are people willing to wear a pair of sunglasses with a camera on it? They look pretty much like sunglasses and actually sort of like silly, funky. They look like the right thing to wear at music festivals. Sunglasses. Yes, exactly. You're outdoors yep. and and your friends know that you're putting on those silly glasses and like that's the point of them. Right. Which I think is a really smart move because they're sort of embracing this seeming problem that we're discussing, which is sort of social normalcy mm -hmm. you know and and how new technology can sort of you know rub up against that in a bad way and sort of embracing it and saying like it's cool to do this because it's silly and it's we're not trying to be like sleek or high fashion or right you know it's not made of gold exactly like <laughs> i don't i don't i i'm not sure if it's going to become like mainstream i do think that like it t totally has a place in uh in like situations where people are dressed a little bit more funky than usual anyway, which is like these like um, music festivals and such, where I think it could be like everyone's wearing uh, yeah. one of these spectacles because that's that's like part of the costume. Yeah, because that's right. And they're I mean they cost less than a pair of Ray Bans. Right. One hundred thirty bucks. You know, um, I read a very disturbing thing about Ray Bans recently, which is that um, I guess Luxottica, which is like the big like glasses conglomerate mm -hmm. when they bought Ray-Ban the brand they just like tripled the prices but didn't change the product at all and now we're just all paying like triple price I mean this happened a long time ago I guess um, but that that's their thing they like buy like sort of good quality but like cheap consumer brands and then just jack up the prices and call them luxury brands and I guess it's a pretty good business model um, side note I'm surprised that it works so yeah well. I know yeah. it's like people are, you know because you don't know how to price it it's just they're all made of plastic and they all block the sun. Right. Um, 
But I think spectacles entering the market at like a normal sunglasses price right. is smart in that way. Um, but like with Google Glass, I would wear it basically as if they were sunglasses and, and eventually they added lenses and stuff, you know, but like, like when I was leaving my house, I would put them on and then when I got to my office, I would take them off mm -hmm. because it was redundant with my computer, right? you know? Um, and so I could see it. I don't know. But as far as the stuff you're doing, um, you know, Venmo is part of it, but what are other things that you're working on right now? Other things you're sort of interested in other, you know, themes in technology that you think are emerging or that you want to, you know, sort of dig in on? Other themes in technology. Interesting. Um, I, can I can tell you about like a side project I'm working on. Yeah. Um, I'm actually working on a side project that hasn't completely been named yet. Uh, the code name right now is Hotspot. Okay. Uh, I like it. That and what it does is it's basically like the ways for physical locations. Um, it tells you how. Isn't Waze full of physical locations? Well, Waze is for, for like for the most part for finding out like how much traffic there is or like on streets that are moving, right? So this yeah. is like in standalone like physical brick and mortar locations Got where like how busy is this nightclub um, right now or. How busy is this grocery store right now? Like, is the line of Trader Joe's around the like Got twice it. around the so block? It's like or is ways it? for restaurants and bars and cafes yeah. and whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so it lets you know how busy a place is and kind of shows you a map of all the things in a particular category and lets you know like how busy it is. So like you know to walk in at the time where it's like for a grocery store when it's like as empty as possible or for a bar when it's not too full where you can't even get in but not too empty where it's just like dead. Um, and Something. like ways, are you thinking of that as far as crowdsourcing that information? Yes, totally. Yeah. So right right now we have uh, some some algorithms running that use some heuristics to kind of uh, get a very very accurate estimate of how busy a location is. Um, but as we reach a critical mass, our strategy is to use people's locations, anonymous data, right, um, to kind of map how busy a place is. It's pretty interesting. And and do you anticipate? So I'm trying to think about it, like this whole idea of crowdsourcing data sounds great, but the incentives have to be aligned on both sides. So for instance, I use Waze, I consume Waze, but I've never contributed yeah. something to Waze. And I don't fully understand what makes some people want to contribute. Mm -hmm. um, but obviously a lot of people do. Right. You know, like what about you? Do, are, are you a contributor or just a consumer of most apps like that? I'm mostly a, a consumer as well. Yeah. Um, I do think that there is a certain niche of people that are the ones that are the, like the ones that are always like tweeting. The hardcore. The ones that are always yeah. on forums and the ones that are always contributing. I, I read a bunch of forums. I, <laughs> right. I, I can probably count the number of times I've right. contributed on, on, on both hands. Right. Um, but yeah, there are those people that really care about, like especially like the stack overflows and stuff where like, uh -huh. you get those points. Um, those really mean a lot to them. And having some kind of gamification yeah. uh, definitely like motivates people to contribute and give back. And there's also like that kind of uh, generosity aspect of it as well, like right. a philanthropic aspect where you're giving back. Pay to it the forward, community. sort of. Right. right. And with the whole um, crowdsourcing, like I think like Apple and Google have built great frameworks inside of these devices where even if your phone is in your pocket, um, it'll send the app location data right. if you give it permission to without consuming right. almost any like, significant battery. Like I think battery. Foursquare now is better 
at predicting how many iPhones are going to be sold than a lot of financial analysts because uh, they can track the foot traffic to Apple stores. Exactly. You know, but yeah. those people aren't like checking in in Swarm or something. Like it's just that they have their phone in their pocket. Right. I mean, Apple. I think it was with iOS eight they introduced like that CL visit API, mm-hmm. which lets you like basically know when someone has stopped at a particular location and to actually visit that place. Yeah. Um, I know that when it first came out, it was not very accurate, but through testing and learning from yeah. users. They've and now iOS 10 is a new feature where it'll remember where you parked your car completely passively. Wow, I had no idea. Um, okay. So A, it somehow knows that you're in a car. Yeah. Then it knows when the car is stopped mm-hmm. and like in a permanent way. And it'll just send you a little notification like, like your car is parked here and you can go back to it later. Uh, That's really interesting. I know that they definitely have that feature where they where you can tell where someone's driving or walking in iOS 7 uh-huh. or iOS 8, they know when they started counting steps, they also told you like if you're on a bike or if you were in a car, or if you were on a train, they could kind of tell based on the right. number of inputs that they have. Um, and I know that they use that even when you're uh, using driving directions. So if you're if you're driving somewhere and then you start walking, like maybe you, you parked like two blocks away and then you start walking, it'll automatically change from driving directions to walking directions. Wow. And yeah. that's like one of those like aha moments. That, yeah. Yeah, you know, from a UX perspective, that's that's like the that's the magic moments, you know, and that those things are all thought out. Like right. it's not rocket science, for instance, to think, okay, well, on a single trip, someone might be in a variety of transportation. Exactly. You know, um, but most UX designers just won't take that mm-hmm. no pun intended final step to <laughs> to conditionalize the experience sort of as you right. go, you know? Um, I mean, getting back to Venmo, how do you think about it? Because the, the journey of a user in a single transaction is so short. Like, how do you improve upon that experience? There's no doubt that the experience you have is superior to basically all the alternatives, which is why I think it's become so popular. But how do you improve something that's so leading you know i think that's where uh, our next product that we've released this year I, um pay with Venmo, really shines um so we've really built a great infrastructure for person-to-person payments um and what we're doing next with this product is letting you pay merchants um and just like paypal and apple pay and a lot of other payment options or even like credit cards um we're, like we're built in, inside of an app and you can basically go through a form field. Arguably for us, it's uh, when you're choosing Venmo, just like PayPal or Apple Pay, it's a little easier than typing a credit card number, um, yeah. which, is, which is great. But not only do we have that value add, but it's also the post-purchase experience. So after you pay delivery.com for that meal with your friends, uh, you can go straight into the Venmo app and you'll see a banner on the top saying split this payment or share this payment. So you can easily just Tap on split. The amount is already inside of a, inside right. of it. Your app. friends are using Venmo, so the whole thing sort of seamless. Yeah. Right, and uh, which is great for your friends. It's great. like basically, basically, like it's helping us create more stories from the purchases you're making to merchants. Um, you can also just share them, even even if you're not splitting it. Um, it lets your friends learn that you maybe like you went to a concert and uh, right. you bought tickets and it's something exciting you really want to like show your friends. Right, um, but it's also great for the merchant because yeah. for the first time. Your, the vehicle of payment also became a vehicle of advertisement. But it's contextual advertisement that converts so much better than 
a normal ad you might see in an app somewhere else. And do you still have to include a note even to a merchant? No, you don't. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, right. I think merchants really love the whole, uh, they want the fewest steps towards sure. purchase. Sure. But when you do share a purchase, uh, I see. Then, that's right. when you have the note. That makes sense. And that's where it becomes contextual. You can mention your friends who, who right. were in and that. And it shows up in the feed. And shows up in the feed, exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty neat. Um, and that's just a start. Like we're this, this is something we're planning on investing a lot of time and effort into really building. Like we we love the engagement, the, the initial the initial numbers that we've been getting from PayVemo, but uh, we're working on building this feature even more and really encouraging that split and share experience uh, because we think that there's a lot of value for both consumers and merchants in this space. Yeah, and consolidating all that so that you sort of get rid of that mental load of like what payment method am I going to use depending on which type of transaction. It's different if I'm paying a friend versus a restaurant versus an online store versus a right. retail, like a physical store versus a whatever, you know, um, just sort of making that part of all one. Yeah, it's just your Venmo account. It doesn't matter if you're paying a friend or a, if you're paying a merchant or even if yeah. yeah. To me, it's just a classic example of where you have a, a startup that is solving a real problem that the incumbents just couldn't do it. And, and you almost personify this transition from finance to tech. You know what yeah. I mean? Um, in that, and it's not just in finance, it's, it's in every industry where there's just something about the large incumbent players that either can't foresee or can't justify the, the R&D needed or whatever. I think, I, I honestly think that they probably did foresee it. I think they probably did have the R&D for it. I'm sure their strategy team was like, it's young at the top of their lungs five years ago that we need a product that can do this, especially with the onset, onset of mobile devices. But I think as a company becomes larger, it's just harder to like really do new things. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's... And to move as quickly as you need right. to move. You need, you, need to, you need to be really agile. I think there are some really terrific companies like Apple, which comes out with a new OS every year with many new features with, the new, with new devices every year. And that's like that. That's really impressive because they're they're a company that has that's very big that has many that they has, could hang back, right? You know, um, being a small startup where you're when well, you have an idea, I think it's a lot easier to kind of act on it and actually iterate and keep trying different things. Like when Venmo first came out, it wasn't a social platform. It was it was almost like a bot. You texted you texted a number that was Venmo um, saying, "Hey, pay Paul five bucks." And that would actually send a payment to your account. Um, there was no app. This is before like, apps were even a thing. This is like when most people were using Blackberries to make payments on Venmo. So you actually started as a chatbot, yep. became an app, and now some platforms like Facebook are suggesting that every app should become a chatbot. <laughs> so people think that Siri is actually new on Venmo. Uh, actually, we actually have a blog post from back in 2012 or 2011 when Siri first came out of uh, the first Siri payment made with Venmo and it was basically you sending a text to that Venmo bot right. um, for this payment. So you had like a workaround because yeah. right, yeah, it's pretty. And that was out the first day Siri came out. It's so cool. Um, so the last thing I wanted to ask you about um, is the product management role, you know, because um, at the beginning you were telling your story sort of about um, about learning iOS development and, and starting a Venmo, and now now you're in, in a product management role, which is you know more encompassing than just code. Um, and so, how do you sort of see that evolution, and and do you think that's a natural 
evolution. Um, you know, I find that product management seems to get grouped in more with the design side of product and less with the development side of product, although I never really understood why. That just sort of seems to be the case. The UX designers and, and visual designers like tend to go down the product management route more often. Um, and yeah, just, just to sort of understand like your thoughts around sort of moving into that role and what the differences are and has it made you sort of a better informed developer to sort of see that bird's eye view and, and you know, um, yeah, as product management, I just feel like it becomes a more and more vital role in all sorts of organizations, Right. you know? Yeah, I think that being a PM, um, I'm certainly able to leverage my skills as an engineer uh, in that like when I'm defining requirements, I can kind of like go a little bit more low level and uh, also like make like when I'm speaking to designers about particular flows, I can kind of talk from that like the iOS standpoint that I have about like what might be easier or more difficult to do for an engineer or what might be more feasible. Um, I do think that the bird's eye view is extremely helpful. Um, I think that being a developer, you have basically like, an, like a junior junior engineer, uh, you like two different career paths. I mean, you probably more than two, but the two that I see are becoming an engineering manager, uh, which is a very common path taken where you, you stay in engineering and just keep getting really good at that. Um, or you can kind of, if you're like, if you're really, for me, my heart was really in the product. The reason I became an engineer was to build things that people can use. Um, I really do admire great UX. I admire when people are enjoying that the apps that they're that they're using and the apps that we're building. So for me, it wasn't more. It was I really do love and I do miss building apps like literally with code. But there is I still do get that sense of satisfaction through being able to um, kind of manage all the logistics from that with that bird's eye view. I think that um, it kind of almost leads me to make more impact because I kind of define the requirements from the onset, which is, it's been, a, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun, but it's also very challenging because the number of stakeholders that you have to kind of like um, speak to and kind of communicate with on a daily basis to move this, move a product, product forward is, surprisingly large uh, when compared to when you're an engineer, where you're usually speaking to uh, a designer and a PM and probably other engineers, but now it's like you're speaking to leadership, you're speaking to um, the communications team, the marketing teams, uh, customer support, you're getting feedback from all these different, different channels and then relaying it to your designers and your PMs, I mean, and your uh, engineers. And I think that... Um, so it's largely about communication like internal communication, not only product and consumer communication. Right. Yeah, I think that a large part of the part of product management becomes the internal communication as well, um, which is an interesting place. I think it's it's definitely challenging to kind of channel all those different perspectives and kind of build a product. But at the same time, I think, again, it gives you that impact that you can't have as an engineer sometimes. Right. Right, because you're just working on one piece of sort of a larger... Right puzzle. Um, that yeah. said, being at Venmo, uh, because we still are like a smaller startup inside PayPal, you definitely do get the opportunity to kind of put a lot of influence in the product you're building. Um, engineers come back to me all the time with like, hey, I think this product flow makes more sense. Um, or even with features, like when I was an engineer myself, um, so one, one of the stories I really like talking about is um, the emoji autocomplete feature where like you're typing in pizza and like yeah. the pizza emoji automatically shows up. 
That was actually, that, that was born when a friend of mine and I went to dinner and she was paying me back for her, her half of the Italian dinner that yeah. we had. And she was looking for the pizza emoji and like she was scrolling for a good, like she knew it existed, right. but for a good 15 to 20 seconds she couldn't find it. Right. And this is like a problem that like, I knew and understood, but I didn't really think about like what the solution would be. And she was like, I wish when I just typed in pizza in Venmo, it would just show up. And I was like, wait, I can do that. Right. Like, and that, There's a fixed number of emojis. Like, right. I can, right. So that night I went home, built it. Like, I remember like, I emailed the product managers at Venmo at like three in the morning. I'd uh, <laughs> be like, this is a new build. Try it out. Like, I, Venmo's all about making payments more fun and easy to use. And I think this totally does it. Um, and I already built it. And I already built it, right. Like, I had sent that hockey app build or test flight yeah, yeah, yeah. in that like, as an attachment. And um, the next day I went to work and everyone was like using it. They loved it. We user tested it that same week and within two weeks it was in the app store. That's so um, awesome. So I think that even being an engineer at Venmo, um, which, is, which I believe is an opportunity you get everywhere else, you really have a lot of influence on the product you're building. Yeah. It's funny because when I talk about product management, um, I, I, to me, there's a lot there that overlaps with sales, actually. Mm-hmm. It's just that you're not necessarily selling to customers, although you are sort of through the product. You know? Yeah. Um, but selling internally, selling your engineers and designers on the idea, um, you know, this is why we're building this, this is important, selling to stakeholders, selling whatever. Um, the thing I like so much about the story you just told is that you know, it's much easier to sell something when you already have it. It's much harder to sell something that you could do or could build. Right. And there's delayed gratification. And, mm-hmm. well, we already have a bunch of stuff that we were planning on building. So maybe this will go to the bottom of the list, whatever. Um, and so a great salesperson will actually wait to pitch the idea until it's done or, or close to done. Um, and I always encourage people uh, at Maz and, and just other startups that I talk to to do the same, which is like, if you feel like your idea is not cutting through, mm-hmm. but you really believe in it, like, just build it. yeah, just do it. Right. And that's basically how your career started, it sounds like. Yeah. Like, don't wait around for someone's approval or permission or whatever. Like, just go and do it. I think the best way to innovate, and I don't think, and I think like everything, every like awesome app that's come out in the past decade was because of doers, like people that really believed in something that, I mean, think about Snapchat, right? Like. Most people probably were like were not very welcome to the idea of like just exploding pictures, right? Right. Um, I think that need that cap vision, really believe in it, and just do it, and then see what happens. I like it. <laughs> um, well, with those inspiring words, I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Paul. Yeah, it's been a blast. This, this is awesome. Uh, and uh, everyone, if you don't already use Venmo, you should immediately um and if people want to get in touch or, or learn more about you where's the best place or places to find you online i tweet at dismir singh that's my full name you can just look me up over there sweet sounds great cool thanks Paul.